After a decade of inactivity, 2017 marked an end to the United States' major hurricane drought. Hurricane Harvey drenched Houston, Irma battered Florida, and hurricane season is barely half over. With many trying to draw a link between global warming and these hurricanes, what do we really know? We'll be speaking to Dr. Ryan Maui of Cato's Center for the Study of Science about tropical cyclones and carbon emissions, and he'll be taking your questions next. Thank you for joining us for this 40th anniversary sponsor briefing. I'm Joe Veruni, project manager of Cato Center for the Study of Science. I'm pleased to welcome you to our live, exclusive discussion between Cato scholars and sponsors. This year, our briefings will center on the 40th anniversary of Cato. I'd also like to invite all of you to visit our 40th anniversary webpage, linked below, where you can see uh, Cato's history and testimonials from policymakers journalists, and leaders in the liberty movement. We've also commissioned a series of special essays examining the future of a free society. The last few weeks have been busy ones for, doctor, for meteorologists, and few have been busier than our own Dr. Ryan Maui. Ryan's a research meteorologist who earned his PhD studying tropical cyclones, giving him skills to convert weather data into maps and climate data. His freeing this onto social media created considerable buzz with his work getting so much attention that the New York Times promoted him as one of the best ways to follow Irma. Ryan was one of the first to predict Harvey would stall over Houston, dumping a deluge of rain. And this accurate prediction gave him a voice of authority to debunk bad climate attribution. In the past few weeks, Ryan has been featured in publications as diverse as the New York Times, Mother Jones, The Washington Post, Breitbart, and the Associated Press and The Guardian. The praise has been effuse, and we're very excited to have him at Cato Center for the Study of Science. Ryan's here to answer any questions you may have about hurricanes and climate science and how this relates to public policy. Please feel free to submit any questions to my colleague Brian Mullis at bmullis at cato.org, and we'll do our best to address them in the next half hour. Uh, so to start off, Ryan, uh, do you uh, believe that man is having an impact on the climate? Uh, appreciate being here, Joe. And absolutely, man is definitely having an effect on the climate. Uh, it may not be in the most visible way that uh, the media may portray it, especially with extreme events, uh, weather events like hurricanes. Uh, but humans are outputting more CO2 into the atmosphere, and that is certainly having a greenhouse effect on the climate. Uh, the question is, is, are we seeing that in long-term records, or are we seeing that in short-term weather events? And that's certainly a question that uh, many scientists and the media that are, uh, are asking on a daily basis, especially when we have all these hurricanes. And it's something that is policy relevant because uh, the question would be, are we, are we going to be making decisions based upon individual events or are we going to be making decisions based upon the whole climate record, all this information that we've been accumulating over decades of study or are we going to just make these about-face stops where a new weather event comes along and that's described as, say, a new normal? So if you're the journalist who's writing one of these stories, trying to link climate change and hurricanes, or trying to not necessarily link them, but just decide if there is a link, um, where, you know, where do you get that data? How, does that, how do you start that process? Yeah. So that's certainly a question that I'm asked by many journalists. Uh, some have science degrees and backgrounds. Others are lay people. 
And the question would be something along these lines. Uh, wow, Hurricane Harvey was a massive storm. Irma was a massive storm. Is this a sign of things to come? And that question is sort of a, out of a, a point of um, naivete about the historical record. Um, if you don't live in Florida, if you don't live in Texas or along the Gulf Coast, hurricane season to you, maybe in Michigan, is considered something that other folks have to deal with. So they may not have knowledge of the historical storms. Part of the issue was over the last decade or so, we haven't had any major hurricane landfalls. So we had Hurricane Wilma was the last major hurricane in 2005 to make landfall. Yeah. We had Hurricane Sandy in between, and that was an enormous damage-causing uh, storm. But if you were to go back and look at the historical records, where do you find that information? Well, it's actually tucked away on the Hurricane Center's webpage. Yeah. And you can download this enormous CSV or Excel file. You can go in there and write some scripts, or you can count them up. Or you can make a bar chart. Now, you know, most of that is going to take a while. And you have to understand that that data in that file, heading back through the years, so you go back into the 70s when we first got satellites. Uh, back into the 1940s, we had aircraft flying around in the storms to sample them. Yeah. Prior to that, the oceans were, you know, they're nebulous areas where we don't really know what happened unless a, maybe a ship accidentally found its way into the hurricane and survived to report the, the, uh, the encounter. Yeah. So our data records are inherently poor, and I'm talking about the Atlantic. The rest of the globe, uh, especially in the southern hemisphere, prior to satellite coverage, it's very difficult to, to understand what was happening with hurricane activity. So what do we actually know, if I'm speaking to a journalist, that over the last 30 to 40 years in the Atlantic, we've seen this uptick of activity. Yes. But prior to that, in the 40s and 50s and 60s, hurricane seasons were no picnic. That's when you had many of the extreme landfalls along the East Coast. And you know, prior to Hurricane Harvey, the strongest storm to hit Texas was Carla in 1961. Well, that's, you know, in terms of human lifespans, that's three generations prior to the current generation. And if you look at Florida, Florida is, uh, has a, uh, a population that continually needs to be replenished. Yeah. There's a lot of retirees that actually had no experience with a hurricane at all. And evacuating South Florida uh, when Hurricane Irma uh, was bearing down on Southeast Florida uh, was an extreme challenge for the elderly um, and folks that aren't used to loading up their vehicles if they have one and departing heading west or northwest. And as we were watching the weather forecasts unfold, we have uncertainty in the weather forecast, as you saw with, you know, the cone of uncertainty was moving back and forth. You had the spaghetti plots. Yeah. And Irma then actually targeted the southwest coast of Florida instead of the southeast. So now you had a whole new batch of people evacuating northward. And, and the storm ended up actually causing considerable problems throughout the entire Florida peninsula up into Atlanta. So now the experience of that hurricane is now in the minds of all the people in Florida, all the people in Georgia. You have Harvey, which now has affected Texas, and uh, unfortunately Hurricane Marina just Maria decimated Puerto Rico. So we have this hurricane season where you have three major landfalls yes. that affected United States areas. And you're, you're a journalist, getting back to that question, you're a journalist and you want to answer the question, 
is this unusual? Well, you would go and look at these historical databases, and you would need somebody to put that information in context for you. Yeah. Is this any different than what we saw in 2005, or is this, is this similar to actually what we saw in 1932? You know, 80 years ago. Just be, you know, 80 years ago, to, to climate scientists, meteorologists, should not be considered ancient history. Yeah, it's a sh over the history of the Earth, that's quite a small period of time. Yeah, that's a speck of time. And we need to be able to use that information um, in order to make decisions about the future because in climate, it's not necessarily that this event will repeat itself, but an event like it will repeat itself. Yes, yeah. So if you're a... Uh, an insurance company, and you're looking to um, do ca catastrophe modeling, you need to take into account all possible uh, situations, all scenarios, a Cat 5 into Miami, a Cat 5 into Tampa. Any one of these storms would be, uh, could possibly be a trillion dollar disaster in today's climate. Yes. And if you looked at the weather forecasts and the spaghetti and the way the cone lined up, there were trillion-dollar disasters in the forecast that could have happened. Oh, yeah. It didn't. Fortunately, it didn't. What we got was bad enough. But sad to say that there's, it always could have been worse, or it could have been a lot better. We could have had any different um, uh, way that the storm's core lines up with the, uh, with the land. Um, it could have made landfall over Fort Myers, rather over you know, the Everglades. Yes. So there's a lot of luck involved. Um, and it's also the fact that, um, you know, hurricanes are very large in size, but the maximum sustained winds, which do the most damage, are very near the center. Yes. And it's focusing on that point, that eye wall, that location of the strongest winds, where that is going to make landfall is critical to the forecast. So when you look at the hurricane center's cone, and then you look at the line up the middle, um, that line up the middle is probably about where the eye should most likely make landfall. Yeah. But the cone can be either side of that. Yeah. So we have this uncertainty today in our current forecasts. And the analogy is looking into the future, what is our cone of uncertainty on hurricane activity in the future? What in is years it? in advance or Years whatever. in the advance. So we're talking about, you know, over the next century or so. Certainly. And is that information, uh, is it as good, are climate models producing information in the future, is it of even equal quality of what we understand about the past? Because now we have uncertainty about the so, past as well. So talking about what we know and what we don't know, I actually wanted to throw to a clip really quick. Can we bring that up? 50 inches of rain in Houston. This is, this is a shot across our bow. A hurricane, the width of Florida, going up the center of Florida. These are, these are shots across our bow. That at what, what will it take for people to recognize that a community of scientists are learning objective truths about the natural world and that you can benefit from knowing about it? The day two politicians are arguing about whether science is true, it means nothing gets done. Nothing. It's the beginning of the end of an informed democracy, as I've said many times. What I'd rather happen is you recognize what is scientifically truth, then you have your political debate. Uh, so in the case of, 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 of energy uh, policy, whatever, it's you, you don't ask, is the science right? 
you ask, should we have carbon credits or, right, or right. Ta What's tariffs? What's the right response? The right, exactly. What is the economic dimension of this? That's where the politics needs to come in, and it's not. The longer we delay, the more... I worry that we might not be able to recover from this, because all our greatest cities are on the oceans and water's edges, historically for commerce and transportation. And as storms kick in, as water levels rise, they are the first to go. And we're, we don't have a system. We don't have a civilization with the capacity to pick up a city and move it inland 20 miles. That's, this is happening faster than our ability to respond. That could have huge economic consequences. So we do know quite a bit about uh, climate uh, change and hurricanes. Uh, when Neil says uh, we're talking about the fringes uh, that we're trying to figure out what's going on, uh, what are those fringes? Well, Neil's, Neil Tyson's uh, clip has, has a lot in there. I think we, we could say that. And when he talks about, I think, the fringes of science, um, as a scientist, that's what we should be examining and studying, things we don't know, things that are at the, sort of the bleeding edge of knowledge. But when it comes to you know, climate change and hurricanes, over the last decade or so since that uh, crazy 2004-2005 period um, where we had uh, very active Atlantic hurricane seasons, in the decades since, we actually learned a lot about hurricane climatology, hurricane science. Building upon what the the legends of our field, like Bill Gray, and uh, and Carrie Emanuel, and others who uh, made their names as you know the big tropical meteorologists, uh, all of a sudden were thrust into the climate science debate. So at that time, I was a grad student at Florida State, and I would go uh, with my colleagues to these American meteorology meetings, meteorological society meetings, scattered around the country. And they would fill up the auditoriums, and it was uh, a battle royal or a food fight between <laughs> these esteemed scientists who were on sort of two sides of the aisle on climate change and hurricanes. You had, uh, let's say, Bill Gray's side of the aisle uh, with many of his students who were more of about observations, who were saying what I explained earlier, that our observations just really aren't good enough to be making these very detailed claims about, let's say, hurricane activity has now doubled over the last 30 years. Whereas on the other side, we had more theoreticians and modelers who were, were saying sort of the exact opposite, that what we were seeing in 2004 and 5 was not only an example of climate change, it was the new normal. Yeah. And uh, these scientists were telling the same things to hur uh, hurricane insurance groups, uh, telling it to the state of Florida that over the next several decades, uh, we were going to see considerable hurricane activity just like this. And it's, it was 12 years since we had another major hurricane. That's fantastic. That's excellent. And during that time, I think the, the hurricane science community uh, came to a consensus. And that consensus was that hurricane changes due to climate change probably haven't been detected yet in our long-term records. So I, I actually wanted to uh, ask actually about that. Um, one of our sponsors, Phil, thank you for being a sponsor, Phil, um, asked, is it likely that flooding, um, especially Harvey and the recent rains in Asia, um, have been made more powerful uh, or intense uh, as a result of global warming? Yeah, I, I think from a theoretical point of view, the answer is yes. There is a signal there. 
The question is, is how large is that signal? Are we talking about, you know, if, if Harvey produced 40 inches of rain on Houston and Harris County, how much of that was due to climate change? You know, and that is, the idea is that in a warmer world, the atmosphere can hold more moisture. And then if you have a hurricane that comes along, it will more efficiently be able to evaporate the ocean's uh, surface, which is warmer, and you'll have stronger rain, rainfall or, or downpours, more extreme. Um, I think Hurricane Harvey is a little, it's a special case in that respect, since Hurricane Harvey made landfall over Texas, and then it stalled out. Yes. The storm motion went to zero, it started looping, it was no longer a hurricane in terms of wind over the, the southeast Texas, but you had these rain bands that were continually training on shore over the one location, which is Texas. Yes. Now, had the storm made landfall 50 miles to the southeast, uh, let's say further, further towards Corpus Christi, those rain bands wouldn't have set up over Houston at all. It would have been over a more sparsely populated area. Yes. You know, we would have still got 40 inches of rain, uh, but we wouldn't have had the, the urban impacts that Houston saw. Now, if you talk about other areas like uh, the Asian monsoon, mm -hmm. India, um, last year in Louisiana, we had a, the no-name tropical storm. Mm -hmm. The year prior to that, uh, we had Hurricane Joaquin in South, in South Carolina. We've had the Nashville floods. And then we go back to 1993, and you had the Midwest floods. The, I, the, the question is, is there, are these floods being exacerbated by climate change in a way that they're causing more damage. Well, the signal that is there in terms of climate right now is very small. The question is, can we detect it? And with our best climate models, which are essentially weather model tools, I would say the jury's still out on that. We're talking about a percent or two. Now, obviously we can't belittle what a percent or two difference makes in terms of somebody's home, but if we're talking about how humans are impacting, let's say, Houston, they've paved it over. Yeah. <laughs> um, excuse me. They paved it over. They've changed the landscape, which was more permeable. It's clay soil, so it's no picnic in order to drain. But we've added canals, estuaries, especially in South Florida. The way that the water naturally drained is not, being, it's not occurring anymore. Now you have humans involved. We've changed the coastline. Um, the coastline is sinking. So we have all these other mitigating effects, which are human-caused. Humans are now living with nature in areas that, uh, you know, are probably not conducive to human habitation without a lot of concrete. Yes, yeah. So when a hurricane does come along, or a, a no-name storm, a tropical depression, a, or a storm, just because we have the urban landscape is going to exacerbate it. And we can extend that logic, obviously, from hurricanes also to heat. Yes. Um, or extreme heat with the Herb and Heat Island effect, and where you have higher nighttime temperatures. Certainly. Um, speaking of uh, temperature, well, first of all, I actually want to reach out and say, uh, if any of you sponsors would like to submit any questions, uh, please do so now. Um, I want to make sure we get a chance to get to them. Um, but I actually want to address one of those um, our sponsor, John, thank you, John, uh, for being a sponsor and submitting a question. Uh, he asked, what are the status of satellite temperature measurements um, that, uh, you know, people decide uh, different uh, types of temperature records are better than others? Do you, do you have a fe strong feeling about that? Uh, yeah, I have strong feelings. Uh, <laughs> the, the temperature data record is, is fairly complicated, 
in the fact that we have these surface data stations scattered around the world. We have many of them in the United States and Europe, which are very densely observed, high-quality stations. However, over the rest of the world, especially the developing world, including Africa and uh, uh, most of Africa, and then you have areas which are not populated, you know, much of South America, interior Australia, for instance, and, and Asia, the weather stations there on the ground are not of high quality. <laughs> they may not even exist. They're just blank areas on these charts that you see. You see these charts from NASA or NOAA that look like Lego blocks. You know, they have the, the different color Lego blocks over large areas where the temperature is, you know, described as higher than normal. You know, the chart just keeps getting redder and redder as they, they change the color bar to, to make it more, more fearful. Um, you don't have much information over the oceans. And then, as we know, once you go back in time uh, over the last century or so, um, the coverage of those temperatures is, is even more sparse. So we're trying to create these data records through time, but we want them to be consistent. We want to have high-quality data over large amounts of uh, real estate as possible. So what they do is this technique called homogenization, where they, just like in milk, they want to homogenize it. They want to make it the same. They want the data record to be consistent through time. Because in reality, they're not giving you information about the actual temperature. They're giving you information about the anomaly, the change from normal. Well, what's normal? That's one question that they have to decide upon, and they actually use climate models to determine that information. Uh, what is the anomaly from that? What is considered, you know, how are we going to get to 2 degrees C? When is that going to happen? Yeah. Well, now you can really start tinkering with the data. You can tinker from where do you start from to get that 2C? What is the pre-industrial baseline? Yes. What data source are you going to use in order to get there? Well, over the last 30 or 40 years, we've had these high-quality data sets that have been created from satellites. Uh, there's actually, NASA creates those as well as a private outfit called Remote Sensing Systems. And uh, the NASA lab is University of Huntsville with John Christie and, uh, and Roy Spencer. So they sort of have these two competing data sets that generally agreed until recently. Yeah, yeah. And all of a sudden now we have a divergence, as so-called, uh, between those two data sets where now one data set is warming more recently than, than it had. Yeah. What is happening is that these data sets are constantly being reprocessed, corrected, fixed. And in, in general, it, the data sets always accentuate the global warming signal. Certainly. It's and whoever controls the past in climate, you know, is, is, that's a, it's a powerful thing because you are... Um, you're tinkering with the record by making scientifically subjective choices. Yes. And you have to justify them and go through the peer review process. Certainly. And the, the main kerfluffle was with the Lamar Smith at the House Science Committee when it was brought to his attention that um, folks within NOAA, uh, NCDC at that time, as it was called, the Climate Lab, had been tinkering with the sea surface temperature data set. And that enormously affected... NOAA's temperature record. Certainly. So if there are all of these different temperature records and data points um, that we can look at, um, I want to address, um, I just want to address uh, a question by Trey. Uh, and uh, Trey, thank you for being a Cato sponsor, um, asked, uh, what is one piece of information that these reporters who have to make the decision of what data to actually cover 
Um, is there one statistic or one piece of information that you would give to these folks um, that you think might help them kind of wrap their head around it in a way that is more accurate to what you believe? Right. Yeah, I think what I do, and honestly, several reporters had no clue what I was talking about, was that I actually point them to a NOAA website at uh, GFDL, which is the Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Lab at Princeton. And previously I was describing all these scientists that have been working on the hurricane problem over the last 10, 15 years. They've created this fantastic website at GFDL that's called Hurricanes and Global Warming. They update it constantly with the new information. And it's sort of like the state of the art, the state of the science of hurricane and climate connections. And they say like four major things, right? They have the bullet points right there, one, two, three, four. And the first bullet point essentially says it's too early to detect the influence of climate change on hurricanes. Yes. It doesn't mean that there's no evidence there. It just means within our data sets, our quality of our data sets, um, and the, the good example is that when you see the Hurricane Center or the Weather Channel say that the hurricane is 115 miles per hour, yeah. it's actually 110 to 120. There's a 10-mile-an-hour there's a buffer there. And that information throughout our historical record is sort of the uncertainty. That's our error bar. And the, the second bullet point would be that we haven't detected that information, the, the impact of climate change. And we may not for many decades. Yes. But what we do know right now is that, based upon theory, we expect to see this change over the next century. Absolutely. Okay, this is not the next century. This is 2017. This is not 2100. Yeah. So if you have climate model information and results from 2100, and Hurricane Irma comes along, that's not evidence that your climate model is correct. Certainly. You can't use anecdotes from today to prove your climate model in 2100. Certainly. And I think journalists actually make the the mistake of um, mismatching the time and what is being predicted here. A prediction for the next century means what we're seeing over the next several decades will probably be no change at all. Certainly. And that needs to ramp up before we even see that. So to that, um, actually to that, point about the climate models, uh, we have a question from Peter. Uh, Peter, thank you for your question. Thank you for being a Cato sponsor. Um, who writes the models? Who comes up with these models? Uh, who determines if they reflect reality? Um, and how does the meteorology community, uh, do they rely on or depend on these models? You're saying they're not very good, do you? <laughs> well, actually, uh, from the meteorological point of view, I think the weather models are very good. And we saw the weather Sorry, model. Climate. <laughs> yeah, we saw the weather models are very good with uh, with her Irma. Climate models are a type of weather model in that they need to recreate not just, you know, the next five days, seven days, they need to recreate the next 100, 200 years. The, the, the thing is about climate modeling in these scenarios where you adjust the, the CO2 content or you include a volcano or you play what if by changing, let's say, the solar constant, is that you need to have that climate model reproduce the past faithfully yes. because what we want is we want an anomaly. We want to be able to compare against a historical background, a baseline. Yes. So usually that baseline is sort of the pre-industrial, which is you know the 1800s, 19, early 1900s, prior to uh, the beginning of the 20th century. So I think uh, the climate models have been constructed over many decades, and the complexity increases each time. They add another component. Let's add ice. Let's add uh, biology. We're going to add an ocean component. And then the ocean's going to interact with the ice and the atmosphere. 
Well, now we're going to include something else. Yeah. So these models are constantly getting more and more complicated. And as the researchers publish their results, the thing is, is that uh, they're all sitting in a room together and they're comparing their climate model results. Well, if one of them is the black sheep, way off in another world where instead of saying that the Earth's temperature is going to increase by a degree, it says 10. Yes. Or instead the opposite. It looks like the, actually the, the planet's going to cool by 2 degrees. They're pressured in a, in a peer-reviewed way to get right with the, with the system here. Yeah. It's like your, your model is obviously doing something wrong. You need to correct it. And in that way, you sort of get this uh, involuntary group thing. Unfortunately, the climate model community doesn't really publish the inner workings of their models yes. until very recently when there was a, a high-profile paper in uh, the Journal of uh, the American Meteorological Society, BAMS, it's so-called, Bulletin of the American uh, Meteorological Society, which sort of aired, you know, I hate to call it the dirty laundry, but they, they put out some of the information about the parameters and the buttons and stuff that they can, the levers they can pull in order to tune these models. Yes, yes. And that's a key thing to do. You have to be able to change the model in order to faithfully replicate the past and then put it in prediction mode. Now, one of the things, you know, just briefly, the hurricane or the climate models didn't do a good job with this so-called hiatus. Yes. You know, the, the leveling off of the warming over the last 20 years. So that is a very important consideration for what do we do about Paris over the next 30 years? You know, if, if the model can't reproduce uh, the hiatus, should we believe over the next 30 years that it, this amount of warning is going to occur? Certainly. And that's certainly something that, uh, um, you know, scientists in general are asking those questions. It's actually a very small community. It's a small number of people that have ultimate control over these models and how they're used and how they're developed. Absolutely. Well, um, with that, I think we've reached uh, the we're out of time. Uh, so I wanted to thank you for your time uh, and your sponsorship for those of you out there watching. Uh, and stay tuned, please, uh, for video highlights of Cato's first 40 years of advancing liberty. Uh, thank you very much. When the Cato Institute launched, the climate for liberty was harsher than it is today. It was 1977. Communists controlled a third of the world. In the United States, the American people were still hurting from the lasting effects of Vietnam, wage and price controls, Watergate, and stagflation. Cato's purpose is to put proposals into the national policy debate that are consistent with individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. Ideological battle lines appeared to leave little room for a third option. Even the word libertarian was itself poorly understood. Ideas like ending the Federal Reserve or the war on drugs were considered extreme. In fact, when I was first working, I was criticized by some people for being a follower. And I can remember that. And I say, how can they criticize you for liking a limited government, economic freedom, and individual liberty? And he said, oh, they have some far out ideas. And I think that's one of the exciting things about Cato. Their far out ideas become mainstream because uh, they're so intellectually uh, powerful. In the early 70s, uh, libertarianism was, uh, I don't know, it was a crackpot idea. And uh, people actually didn't admit that they were a libertarian. Shortly after its founding in San Francisco, the Cato Institute moved to Washington, D.C. 
Before Cato came to town, there was no libertarian presence in Washington. When I came for an interview, we hadn't moved into the Waterston House yet, which was our first headquarters on 2nd Street. And it was a little law office where it had a back room without any shades on the window, and it had an uh, iron post bed there with a mattress that was, uh, the stuffing was coming out of it, and that was the interview. But unlike so many interest groups in our nation's capital, Cato exists not to advocate for government-directed protection or giveaways. Quite the opposite. We think the essence of America is a respect for the dignity of individual human life, and we think public policy should um, reflect that dignity and enhance it. And from our perspective, that means um, less government control over your life. Cato works to develop policy options that expand what we call civil society, the voluntary interaction of individuals, associations, religious groups, businesses, and, um, and try to limit political society, which uh, uh, of necessity is coercive. Cato's work has always focused on making sure that ideas to protect and preserve human freedom have a place in the discussion, whether the powers that be like it or not. Cato has been willing to criticize both parties' office holders when they've tried to take the country in a direction that favors expedience over freedom. Because of Ed Crane's talent and persistence, the Cato Institute is known and respected for its nonpartisan views. Unfortunately, most think tanks get semi-captured in the political process. It's a huge temptation because you think you're having impact, but then your ideas are no longer objective. So I think the objectivity and, and the adherence to our values, no matter what the political winds are blowing, is very unique. We come down sometimes in the liberal camp and sometimes in the conservative camp. That prevents us from being inside Washingtonians. You know, we are actually outside Washingtonians, even though we are geographically located within the city. Democrats and Republicans are probably going to rarely uh, agree with Cato's policy positions, but they would be very hard put to find anything wrong in the data that Cato builds its conclusions on. It's the, it's the, the digging for facts and the digging for facts without prejudice, no alternative facts. Many people don't realize how broad Cato is in its defense of liberty and wants to box it in as if it's a right-of-center libertarian think tank when that is not all the case. Cato is on Team Liberty. It's not on Team Republican. It's not on Team Democrat. But Cato is also known for being open to supporting a broad range of people who intersect with the Institute for different parts of its core values and mission. Not beholden to politicians, political parties, or government funding, the Cato Institute makes the promotion of distinctly libertarian public policy solutions its fundamental purpose. I think the Cato Institute really deserves a lot of credit for its leadership in a, a couple of areas, one of which I, which I was very involved, uh, and that is uh, Social Security privatization. Transforming Social Security from an eventually insolvent government program to a system of privately owned retirement accounts. That we took from nowhere, no one had thought of this idea, and got as far as the President of the United States second term agenda. Cato's work on the war on drugs I think has been very important because they've been able to elevate the costs of the war on drugs alongside of thinking about whatever benefits someone might think. In 1988, I wrote an article in the New York Times called Let's Quit the Drug War. 
Um, it was shortly followed, and I can't say because of, but it was shortly followed by the economist endorsing legalization, the mayor of Baltimore endorsing legalization, congressional hearings being held on the topic, but the real case in, in terms of policy and analysis was not being made by very many people. Mr. Niskanen, is it protectionism of the rankest form? Yes, it's the worst trade bill that I have seen in many years. It will harm American consumers, it will harm American exporters, it will hurt our foreign affairs with some very important allies, it will probably destroy the prospects for a new trade round, it will hurt American bankers who have foreign loans. Uh, there isn't a good thing to be said about it. It is an organization that has always maintained that uh, free trade is, is, in, is part of human dignity and human experience, uh, whereas organizations always thought of it purely as an economic means. Cato sees it as actually human flourishing. And there aren't a lot of groups that still focus on trade. It truly is wonderful to have, and, and necessary, to have an ally such as Cato, which will honestly live up to that statement attributed to Voltaire, I disagree with what you say, but I will defend to the death, you're right to say it. Here is an institute that is willing to stand up for uh, for the right of, in, of every individual to say and do whatever he wants and do his own thing. Uh, there are, it, it sounds very banal, uh, it, uh, and it should be banal, but it's, unfortunately it's not that uh, simple. Cato is a great voice for liberty. It stands for free people and free speech, things which it just must have for a strong democracy. America's treasured constitution needs to be vigorously defended. An intrusive, overweening government and narrowly focused interest groups have done enormous damage to the struggle for a free society. Throughout its decades-long effort to promote the ideas that animate our founding document, Cato has printed more than six million pocket constitutions, including editions in Spanish and Arabic. The founding era of the United States left behind a fragile and decidedly imperfect civil society but the task of clarifying and promoting the ideas that help freedom take root is the purpose of the Cato Institute. There are many organizations and individuals that have played important roles in mainstreaming libertarianism, but uh, for that achievement, I always count Cato as the MVP. Cato really is the mothership. Cato is the preeminent forerunner uh, advancing liberty in the face of overwhelming government juggernaut. The fact that they go to lunch and come back and continue this, I think, is a real uh, testament to their, their patience and truly their courage to continue plugging along in the face of, of so much difficulty and adversity when it comes to fighting for liberty government. So Cato is the keeper of the light. Cato sticks to its guns uh, better than anyone else. The power of changing where policy is headed in, uh, in this government uh, is a huge opportunity for Cato. So it's not when we made the, the greatest impact, it's we are going to make the greatest impact as we move forward. I'm very proud to be associated with the Cato Institute. I'm, I, uh, it's an organization that has a high level of integrity, with a high level of commitment to ideas with which, with which I agree, and I think it is making a difference against some tough odds. It is a moral imperative that we follow this example, reclaim our heritage as a free people, and reclaim our right to live in a just society. With Cato's track record over these past 40 years and the outlook for liberty continuing to improve, 
Cato Institute will continue to be the foremost champion for human liberty.